Hello and welcome to the Gamers Tavern. The first thing I want to do is thank our Kickstarter backers for the successful campaign. We ended up raising $2,091.51. I'm just so excited about the changes coming with the brand new website, new features, a new weekly blog, upgraded equipment for our audio recording. We'll have more announcements as we start rolling out the new features. And I just, I don't really have anything more to say other than thank you so much to everyone who backed us. If you didn't get a chance to get in on a Kickstarter and you want to support the Gamers Tavern, we have several ways for you to do that. You can, of course, visit our sponsors. We heartily encourage that. And for most of the games and other products we talk about in this show, if you look at the show notes for every single episode, our links there are through our affiliate accounts. So if you make a purchase through those links, that also helps. Finally, we have a PayPal donate button and an Amazon wishlist button on the right-hand side of our website if you want to donate to us directly. But that's enough shilling. Go ahead and grab a drink from the bar and take a seat at the table in the corner as, um, well, we, we shill for just a little bit more with a quick commercial break. Are you looking for a new game to play? DriveThruRPG is the internet's largest source of role-playing games. Enjoy our game table episodes with Shadowrun, Dungeons and Dragons, or Mutants and Masterminds, and you want to join in? Or is World of Darkness, Battletech, or Fate more your thing? Or maybe you just want to check out games from our guests like The Cursed and Shintar, the Savage World settings. Just go to gamerstavern.org slash RPG and you can have a new game to play in minutes. And they also have the largest selection of free games, source books, and starter sets anywhere in the world. Go to gamerstavern.org slash RPG and support the show with every purchase. Hello and welcome to episode number 41 of the Gamers Tavern Podcast. I'm your host, Ross Watson. And I'm Daryl Mott Jr. I, it's hard to believe we've made it to 41 episodes of this show. <laughs> Especially since we called last episode 39 because we had two 39s because I screwed up. Yeah, I, I did. Yeah, I was wondering about that. But it's okay. We're, we're, we've, we've made it quite a long ways. And tonight we have with us a couple of great guests, uh, one of whom has been on the podcast before. We have Mr. Bryant Smith. Hello. And we have a newcomer to the podcast and a guy who's very, very well known in the gaming industry, Mr. Owen Casey Stevens. Hey, folks. Welcome to the show, Owen. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Oh, absolutely. You know, for, for the listeners, Owen has actually been a guy I kind of looked to as a mentor for a long time in my own career. I met him several years ago at a, at a Gen Con. We had breakfast together and he was kind of telling me about working on Star Wars and working on D&D and getting into Dragon Magazine and things like that. And a lot of the things that Owen said really helped me get into the industry myself. So it's a real pleasure to have Owen on the show tonight to talk about the things that we, you know, now that we are in the industry together, that we have worked on and and that we love, you know, kind of as a group or a tribe, if you will. <laughs> I, I did not know that you remembered that or found it useful. That's nice to know. Absolutely, absolutely. Of course, tonight we're going to have an interesting topic because we're talking about dungeon crls. I think Owen might know a thing or two about those. <laughs> I know it's come up Brian. Twice. I know Brian certainly knows a thing or two about them, and I also do. Um, don't hesitate to speak up. Although Brian, Brian and I are on the same mic tonight because he's actually visiting from uh, Cheyenne. I'm actually sitting on his lap like a ventriloquist dummy. So. 
told me that sitting on a lap was a ventriloquist dummy was an option. (laughs) (laughs) That would be so much simpler than what I've got rigged up. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just also really quick, Owen and I were at Comic Palooza earlier this year. We were in Houston talking about a lot of really interesting panels there, actually about game design and uh, encounter design and monster design, a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, the Comic Palooza game track is actually really beefy, and they've got some excellent guests. Uh, I was there, Ross was there, Adam Daigle was there, I believe for him the second time. Uh, they're doing a really great job of expanding that, so if you're if you're in the area, here's my unpaid promo. Uh, Comic Palooza is growing, and it's a lot of fun, and even if you are more a gaming person than a media geek or a comic geek, I think it's absolutely worth going and listening to people. Yeah, Daryl was there too. Yes, and Daryl was there too, absolutely. And good timing on that plug too, because they just opened up registration for 2015 last week. <laughs> I genuinely did not know that. Yeah, if you're interested in going, they've got that up and running right now over at comicpalooza.com. So. The head of the game track, at least for last year, was Joe Charles, and I have nothing but good things to say about Joe Charles and the gaming track at Comic Palooza. It was amazing. Yeah, I agree 100%. Okay, so the thing we do whenever we bring guests on our show is we we like to have them tell the listeners a little bit about who they are and where they might know them from in the format of a gaming character sheet. Now, Bryant's had to do this before, so I'm going to let him go first and kind of give us the abridged version. Uh, Bryant, can you tell the listeners uh, about yourself as a gaming character sheet? Well, let's see. Current or past? But, you know, you pick. <laughs> I think as a character sheet, I would be kind of the retired warrior with a lot of stories uh, that's running the bar. <laughs> okay. You know, that's, that's running the tavern that the party finds itself in. Are you an NPC? Day one. I'd be an NPC right Okay. <laughs> you know, I'd kind of get the characters, you know, going and, and maybe give them a, a, a hint or two of where they need to, to be. But All right. I, I think I'd be the friendly bartender that, that they'd always come back to. Now, you've been a gamer for how long? Uh, let's see. I started when I was, well, so about 28 years. Jesus. And you've played uh, everything from Shadowrun to Birthright to Ravenloft and beyond. Is that right? Pretty much, uh, yeah, I would, Mainly focused on D and D, did some Shadowrun as a you know player, ran some Star Wars campaigns with the D twenty system, and Woo-hoo. yeah, so yeah, so we have a we almost have a, a all Star Wars cast tonight, which is kind of awesome. Is there anything you can tell the listeners about where you know they've heard you before? You were on the uh, the podcast about evil parties, about evil parties, yes, which uh, was a lot of fun to do. So yeah, um, I mean. Here I am back again visiting Ross. Haven't haven't actually been face to face with Ross, and uh, we talked about it earlier. Thirteen years, so that's that's quite a, a long. Time it is, ago. and we did establish you are not an elf. I'm I'm not an elf. Okay, that's, although you did say that I I resemble the dwarf right now. You do. You have a big. He has a magnificent <laughs> beard. All right. Thorin um, Oakenshield. <laughs> All right, that's good. Well, uh, let's let's actually hear now from Mr. Stevens. What is that people may know you from as your gaming character sheet? Okay, well, uh, on my gaming character sheet, I'm one of those annoying multi-class characters that you only ever see in organized play games. Um, <laughs> is it a at this point, character sheet? I, it's a D20 character sheet, right? I, I don't know if it matters what game system it's in, because it's, <laughs> it's going to draw from the same baseline anyway. Uh, so I'm like a game designer, seven, and then you get into weird prestige classes where you're a, a genius, Ronin, Gollum, Rogue. 
right? Because I currently work for Paizo, and they've got the Golem as their, their icon. Uh, I also am the Pathfinder developer for Green Ronin. Uh, I did a lot of freelance work, uh, a product a week for four years for Super Genius Games, uh, and then I was bought out from Super Genius last year to start my own company, Rogue Genius Games. My uh, my feats include things like Wide Girth God of Crunch. I am much better known for game rules material than background material or adventures, which is a little odd since I am now the Pathfinder Modules developer over at... Uh, Paizo, so I'm mostly dealing with punchers. <laughs> and the only thing I'm up for for Diddy this year is I wrote one quarter of uh, Heart of the Razor, which was, again, an adventure. So I've had a real run of adventures recently. Uh, before that, I suppose I might stick Jedi on that list of multi-classes because I did work on every D20 edition of Star Wars. I worked for Wizards of the Coast from 2000-2001, uh, and then I got laid off, so on my old wounds, it has laid off Watsy minus five <laughs> All D&D related checks. Um, that said, I've been gaming for 30 years. Uh, I put a lot of levels under my belt in that time. I've been freelancing for 16 or 17 uh, full-time for almost all of that. I worked for Watsi one year as an employee, and I have now been working for Paizo for about three months. All the rest of that time, I was a full-time freelance writer. Full-time freelance writer. So there's a big survival check, and belt tightening is a skill that I've got skill mastery in. Are you an elf? No, absolutely not. I am, <laughs> I am much closer. I am a uh, giant hobbit, right? Okay. And I, like, I like comfort. I've got big feet. I have a wide middle. Uh, I don't like leaving my hobbit hole if I can help it, although Gen Con's coming up, so there's nothing to be done for it. I'll have to go have fun and meet thousands of people. It's an um, adventure, Mr. Baggins. It, it is, right. Uh, and, you know, my wife has been described by our friends as the Hobbit Sauron. So I, I think <laughs> I think halfling is a much closer description of my race. I'm just an unusually tall halfling. Don't there's tall fellows, and then there's tall, tall fellows, and then there's me. What? Isn't there also stouts? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a stout fellow is what I am. I'm both big and fat. I can't see where you're at right now, but I'm assuming that the eye of Sauron is actually gazing upon you as you said that. Uh, no, actually, the eye of Sauron's in the next room right now. But, uh, so we just moved out to Seattle to take this job. We were in Oklahoma until then. And the time from the Paizo job offer to us being physically here was six weeks. So... The house in Oklahoma is not sold yet, and as a result, in order to make sure our budget would work while we're still paying for that mortgage, even though we're not in that house anymore, we're in a 500-square-foot apartment. So despite that, there is actually a other room, and that's where she is right now, so that when she throws me nasty looks, it won't be picked up by the microphone. Okay. (laughs) Um, But, you know, she's, she's also the product manager over at Rogue Genius. She's been my manager of my career pretty much my whole life. If I've got a freelance project and I'm not sure if I can do it or not, I will, I will turn to LJ and I'll say, is this a good idea? And, and two-thirds of the time the answer is, no! You're already three <laughs> months behind on everything you're doing. Uh, and she's right. But she's also a... She's my badass gamer chick, right? She's she's a bigger geek than I am. While I was still playing in my mother's garage, she had organized a giant gaming guild that got together and played at the library when we were younger. So That's pretty badass. It is. We have her on. (laughs) You should absolutely have her on. She did a few years ago at Gen Con. She did a uh, 
seminar on the care and feeding of game professionals, and she had Fred Hurley and some other and uh, Miranda Russell. Um, she had other people whose significant others worked in the game industry to discuss such topics as how to tell when your spouse is doing research and how to tell when they're actually just goofing off. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's a that's a great game, gaming character, Shido, and thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, we're going to go move on to the next part where we talk about what we've been playing lately here on the Gamers Tavern. And I think I'm going to go ahead and start with Bryant. The last time we talked to you, you hadn't really been playing a lot lately, so I, has anything changed? Not really, because I packed everything up in California because I retired from the Marine Corps and am now currently employed by the railroad. So I've basically been studying the game manuals. Or, I mean, you know, rule books for, for that. Are you are you LARPing Ticket to Ride, maybe? I'm basically <laughs> LARPing, yes. Okay. Well, uh, Bryant has been invited to join my uh, Birthright game that I'm starting up for D&D 5th Edition. So I'm kind of hoping to get him involved in more gaming in the future. Um, Daryl, what have you been playing lately? Uh, well, last week we had our second session of the new edition of Dungeons and Dragons running through the starter set. And uh, I learned from some of my mistakes. Ross didn't trip me up like he did before by keep asking me what NPC names were. I had a little printout sheet with all of them on it and highlighted them. So couldn't do that anymore. <laughs> but uh, I still tripped up a lot toward the end because I got sleepy. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I really, it's, it's a system so easy that even when I'm half asleep, I can still run it pretty well. Well, uh, I've also been playing in the D&D 5th edition game. I'm really enjoying it. I've been playing some Shintar here in Colorado because I am now the managing director for Evil Beagle Games with uh, Patrick Fannin and Corinne Seagulls. And, uh, Congratulations. Well, thank you. Uh, Shintar is a really great setting for Savage Worlds, and I'm really enjoying kind of uh, delving into that. Um, and in addition to that, of course, we've been playing a lot more Sentinels of the Multiverse, which is fantastic, hard game. I'm really enjoying that. Daryl, you've got to play it. Uh, my roommate and Jay Con is playing uh, it. You know, I think that's pretty much it for now. Um, so let's talk to Mr. Stevens. I left the best for last because I bet he's playing a lot of games. What have you been playing lately, Owen? I, I'm not playing a lot of games because, as I mentioned, I just moved three months ago and we were in boxes until fairly recently. Um, I am playing uh, a Pathfinder game, Shock of Shocks. Uh, James Jacob runs a game for the developers, and what he is running, which is a little horrifying, is uh, the Temple of Elemental Evil, but he's running the second edition version, and all he does is adapt whatever you're supposed to run into to Pathfinder. So if you're wandering through the woods out by the moat house and it says that your three second-level characters run into 2d8 ghouls, he rolls 2d8, <laughs> and that is how many ghouls you run into. If a plot line seems to direct you that maybe you want to attack a river pirate captain when you're third level and it turns out he's eighth and has 20 crewmen, well, you should have checked that before you attacked the river captain. Uh, so it is... A very old school setup. The, the treasure is just as random, right? Whatever, whatever the book says we get, we get. So far, we haven't had a death, although, wow, we've had some close calls. Uh, and I'm playing a war priest in that, which is the class from the advanced class guide, which isn't quite out yet. So for at least several weeks, I was the only person in the world, because there's no one else at Paizo doing it, playing the final version of the war priest class, which 
maybe the only time I ever get to be the only one playing an official class, so it was kind of fun. Uh, oddly, the other thing I'm playing a whole lot of right now is Casino, which is spelled C-A-S-S-I-N-O, which is just a regular deck of card games, and it's from a class of games called Italian Fishing Games. And if you've never played or read into an Italian fishing game, the mechanics for it are very different from almost any other card game. Uh, it plays well from three to six or seven people. I enjoy it very much, and it, I, I like exposing myself to new kinds of games and new ideas. So myself and Hobbit Sauron and Stan and some other people have played it uh, at the AFK Elixirs and Eatery nearby fairly often, like more than once a week. No Wayne Newton and no Blackjack, but it's called Casino. Uh-huh. All That's right. That's because it's not an English word. <laughs> Uh, I have been to the AFK Tavern. It is a awesome place to go. They have vending machines that disperse dice and magic booster packs. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's the tavern, which is more of a bar and small. This is the AFK Eatery and Elixirs, which is a full-size restaurant where the keg used to be. And it's down here in Kent slash Renton. So it's oh, a, a, a they, they've, they've Yeah, they've got a new place. And all right. It's like five minutes from my house, so I'm there all the time. All the geography I know about Seattle I learned from Shadowrun. Yeah, me too. <laughs> All right, so when Mr. Johnson tells you to go to the keg, what he means is the AFK Eatery and Elixirs. All right, good to know. Got it. Where in relation to the Redland Barrens is it? <laughs> uh, written borders on the Barrens. That's about the only thing I know about. <laughs> you, you can, they've got a Facebook page, right? They're not hard to find. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the next step in our evolution here on the Gamers Tavern. We talk about Tavern Tales. And this is where we ask our guests to give us a tale of a memorable die roll or resolution, if it's a game that doesn't use dice, uh, that they can you know share with the listeners. And, uh, let's start with Brian. Brian, can you tell us about a memorable die roll? Well, see, there was this one time with this Dracolit. No. <laughs> you did that one last time. <laughs> but it's no less memorable. It is true, but I need a new one. Uh, okay, actually, same character, Gavanon, at the... Basically, the climax of this campaign. Well, now, for, for listeners who didn't hear last episode, tell us who Gavinon is really briefly. Okay. Gavinon Taller was a blade singer that I played in Ross's uh, Birthright campaign. Actually, I played him in two Birthright campaigns. And this would be the very end of the first campaign, where our party was, was attempting eventually to get onto the Iron Throne, one of, one of our members. There's another guy in, in Birthright that, that kind of covets that certain chair and he's a kind of a nasty dude named the gorgon so the gorgon who's uh anshay shows up and one of his powers is petrification so at this point i was you know relatively high level character i think i was probably 15 or so you know so and we're talking uh ad and d rules so my saving throw at, at that point versus petrification was something ridiculously low like four or something I don't, <laughs> you know basically it was Ho-hum, okay, so I'm going to, you know, he's going to try to turn me to stone, and then I'm going to kick his ass and, you know, like the Dracowitch. So, <laughs> like you do. Like I did. You know, Gavinon was was up until this point pretty much the Cuisinart of the party. Um, he had a sort of speed, if I remember Yes, right. he did. And and bracers of speed. Oh, God. So, it, I remember it that slices, it, it dices, it makes thousands of Julian Kobolds. <laughs> <laughs> So I was I was basically prepared to just whoop you know the whoop the game on and and end the Gorgon and you know be the hero of the party as I had been up until this point pretty much you know in in every major encounter that we had had because I had some very lucky dice so grab the twenty like 
stand back, guys. I got this. And I roll a one. <laughs> and I just sat there in shock. <laughs> and I looked at the dice. And I remember looking real quick to see if Ross had seen the one yet or not. And before I bumped the table. <laughs> because, like I said, this is like the last, this is the climax of the of the entire campaign. This is, you know. Remember, kids, of- it's only cheating if you're caught. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm like, I cannot believe this just happened. And Ross was actually, I think he might have been even more shocked than I was. Uh, because I think he might have even been counting on me helping carry the, the encounter a little bit. <laughs> and this is round one. <laughs> Let me get that out there. This is the beginning of round one. Like I won, or no, actually the Gorgon won initiative. So I was going, you know, now and bam, he turned me to stone. And so I sat there sulking and, and crying, you know, so, silently over to myself as, uh, as the party continued and ended up being the only person that failed their saving throw against the Gorgon in the final fight, round one. Yes, but you did have a great role-playing moment about it later. Yes, I did. And got a lot of experience points about that. So So my takeaway from that was that your character was hopped up on speed and then got stoned. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Perfect analogy for that character. Oh, and damn it, beer went up my nose. (laughs) (laughs) There are other orifices that would have been less pleasant for it to go up, Daryl, I promise. Uh, no. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Bryant. Uh, Owen, how about you? Do you have a good tavern tale for us about a memorable die roll? It tickles. I, I certainly have <laughs> I certainly have one for a memorable resolution. Um, I will try to keep this relatively short and just do the crucial background information. The first thing you need to know, because it comes up later, is that I was at the Gen Con where the first edition of the Pathfinder role-playing game core rulebook was released, and I bought it directly from the hands of Jason Bullman, who signed it. That will be crucial here in a minute. Fast forward five years. This past March, my friends knew that I'd gotten the job at Paizo and I would be leaving, so we are wrapping up all of our campaigns. One of our campaigns is a low-level but mythic game that involves a lot of plate and hopping and a city called Monolith, and that city exists in all realities. And this campaign is specifically set up to support unusual, non-human, non-standard class and race combination characters. So I am playing a uh, Dampier from the Advanced Race Guide, who is a Death Knight from the Genius Guide to the Death Knight. So she's a half-vampire who's running around, <laughs> worshipping the powers of death and trying to put down other undead. Brian's We're all myth- happy dance just listening to that uh, <laughs> the character concept. Yeah, and, and by the way, I, I came in as normal compared to some of the stuff we had. We had a, a poisonous snake humanoid gunslinger who licked her bu- bullets to envenom them before shooting people. But the game the game was set up for these characters, right? That was the whole point of it. So I guess it was a get-it-out-of-our-system game. And it was mythic, so that was not the weirdest stuff about our characters. My character equipped as a weapon a Bec de Corbon, the, the French polearm, because I had never played a character with one, and I was looking to hook something new as a character concept. And it has a times three crit multiple, but you have to roll a 20 to threaten. And I had Mythic Power Attack, which, if anyone has not looked at it, is the most ridiculously overpowered pure number Mythic option out there. You can do simply stupid amounts of damage, even at low levels. As, so as we're a having power the, gamer, I approve where this story is going. <laughs> so... We have discovered, and in our characters, we have discovered are these these incarnations of important concepts. My character was the Obsidian Shield. 
She empowered the concept that there are secrets that must exist, but no one should know, so it's her job to keep those secrets. And we were facing a different group of of incarnations who wanted to destroy the entire multiverse and rebuild it in their image, which sort of was accelerating the end of the campaign because LJ and I were moving up to Seattle, but we had seen hints of this before. And so we were facing off with creatures just as mythic and freaky as we were. I had managed to get someone to cast invisibility on me. I had run up on an incredibly powerful bad guy of theirs who was behind several protective barriers. And from being invisible, I swung on him, rolled a natural 20. It was a threat. Everyone cheered. And the ref just looked at me and said, he burns a point of mythic power and he negates the threat. You do no damage. Oh, now at this point, I said, wait a minute. And he said, do you have, do you have something you can do? Something about that? Yeah, because we don't have the mythic powers memorized yet, right? So the GM is constantly being aware that whatever he rules, we may say, okay, then how does this apply? And I say, just a minute. And I get up, and I walk across the game room, and I start rummaging through the boxes I have already packed for the trip. And he's like, what is going on? I'm like, just a minute, just a minute. Do you have something about this or not? Said, That'll be up to you, just a minute. And I dug up my original first printing core rulebook, the Pathfinder role-playing game, pulled it out of the box, walked it over, flipped it open, and showed the GM that when Jason Bullman had signed it, he had put a sticker on it that said, good for one free limited wish in any <laughs> campaign, not valid for Pathfinder Society, and there was a checkbox to check it when it was used. So Got I it. handed my GM the book, and I said, I wish my threat still had a chance to confirm. And he looked at it, <laughs> And he shrugged because it's a mythic game and we're ending the campaign. He checked it. He signed it. He dated it. He put the name of the campaign in it. My threat got a chance to confirm. I rolled another natural 20. And in a group of characters who are, I think, fifth level at that point, on a power attack times three multiple mythic power attack crit, did something like 120 points of damage, <laughs> killing the villain in a single shot. Nice. nice. But I had to burn a one-shot real-world resource from Jason Bowman to do it. So he gets half the kill. That's an assist. Well, I'm going to I'm gonna start putting that in all the books I signed for 40K now on as some kind of, like, you get a free fate point, you know? <laughs> That's right? awesome. I mean, Love that. Why wouldn't you do that? That is amazing. That's one of the best tavern tales I think we've had on this show. Yep. So good on you, Mr. O Stevens. Thank you, sir. Well, I'm, I'm a gaming whore, right? If, when I can, I game three times a week, so stories pile up. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's dive into the topic of the night. Uh, dungeon crawls. I'm going to throw this out there to the guests and whoever wants to answer first is fine. But what defines a dungeon crawl when we're talking about that genre? A dungeon crawl is a location based adventure that has a reason, be that metaphysical or physical, that makes it difficult to move through it in a nonlinear or at least somewhat nonlinear fashion that is removed from immediate support. The classic example is a series of rooms underground, but that is far from the only thing that can be a dungeon. I would say that pretty much sums it up. Are you reading a dictionary? I wrote the advanced game master's guide for Green Ronin several years ago, and one of the topics in it was, what is a dungeon? So <laughs> okay. this is a topic near and dear to my heart that I've given a stupid amount of thought to. <laughs> well, that is going to get us past that bullet point in record time. <laughs> So the follow-up is, can you have an adventure in a dungeon 
that is not a dungeon crawl. And I think we already know what the answer to that is, but let's explore that idea. Yes. <laughs> so would want to leap in or shall I just keep talking? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those quite, it's like, do you need to breathe air? <laughs> yes. Well, it's not, I, I don't think it's quite that obvious, right? Because when you say dungeon crawl, and, and as Owen even himself pointed out, that that's the classic example is that it's in an underground layer, right? So if just because, so all dungeon crawls are dungeons. I mean, obviously that's not necessarily true, but let's for the sake of argument, all dungeon crawls are dungeons, but not all dungeons are dungeon crawls, if that makes sense. Yeah, so it, it depends on two things. One, how's the thing set up? Because if it is nothing but a list of rooms with things to kill on it, like, say, keep on the Borderlands, then it will be up to the GM and the players to make it not a dungeon crawl and it will be more work. Wow. But dungeons, you know, Owen, I, I'm sorry, i got to jump in here. I think you picked the, the worst possible example to give because keep on the Borderlands is kind of renowned for having a the idea or sort of establishing the idea that there is more to do outside the dungeon. If you look at the original dungeon, those are rooms with monsters that don't wander back and forth and talk to each other that are waiting for you to kill them and take their stuff. They are orcs, they have pies. Right, but isn't isn't Keep on the Borderlands kind of the first time, though, that a, like an official dungeon mat in a module kind of suggested that the story was taking place in a larger world, that the Keep was, you know, sort of a political place and there were things to do and see and, and adventure in beyond just the, the dungeon itself. Sure, and that means that there were adventures taking place not in the dungeon that weren't a dungeon crawl if you got involved with them. But once you got in that dungeon, it was a dungeon crawl. Okay. But you can set things up very, very differently. Um, one thing that is very popular in a number of dungeons, super dungeons, mega dungeons, the whole lot, um, is the idea of communities that exist within that dungeon. Right, so there's a, there's a community, there are a couple communities, for example, uh, in the world's largest dungeon that AEG did. If you look at Dragon's Delve, which was the Dungeon Day dungeon that was started by Muddy Cook and ended by Super Genius Games, there is a demigod dragon, red dragon, at the bottom of it, who has a court of dragons and has political influence that goes throughout, and there are levels of that that are things like a community of Medusa. When you look at Emerald Spire, there are direct ties between uh, the Hell Knights of Fort Inevitable and a group of Hell Knights that are somewhere in the dungeon. I don't want to talk too much about it because I might actually be a spoiler for people. Mm. So it is perfectly possible to have a lot of the same sorts of things you do elsewhere, including political intrigue and even murder mysteries and exploration and things that aren't dungeon crawls occur in a dungeon. You just have to make sure that the elements exist to support that. Um, Arya Marmel, who's done a, a lot of game work and is mostly, I think, a novelist at this point, actually posted on his Facebook page, is it possible to have a non-dungeon crawl in dungeon? And I posted a fairly lengthy answer on how you could set that up. Uh, and part of it is if you've got encounters that the best and most obvious ways to solve them isn't killing something or disabling a trap. That is a good example of a opportunity to have a non-dungeon crawl setup. In the particular case I gave for that example, I said, let's say that while you are exploring the caves under a community of outcasts and rebels, you find a few levels down after you've dealt with the Ankeg and the Mushroom Men and, and maybe some, some Darrow, you find some cells that have fallen angels locked into them, and this is their punishment. They can talk to you, but they can't leave. 
you now have a situation where the obvious answer is not to open the cells and kill them. You're not even sure what they're guilty of. Once you open the cell, you may let them out. Now you've unveiled this place, the word's going to get out they exist. So you and the community have some decisions to make. Are you going to put guards over these cells so that no one lets the angels out? Are you going to let people listen to the angels, who after all have celestially honeyed silver tongues and might convince people to let them out? Are you going to try and determine if they were actually stuck down there for some crime or if you want to release them? Those are all things that can take place in that that area and can drive dungeon crawly efforts, right? If it turns out that there's a key and it's 12 layers further down as the flactory of a lich, then you've gone back to a dungeon crawl. But you can also have political motivations and people from the great empire to the west show up because they want to talk to the angels and ask them theological questions and other people are there are demons who are coming up from the the depths who are saying no you've got to kill the angels we want our revenge and and but we're not willing to force you because then we won't be able to open the doors because no outsider can there are lots of ways you can work that stuff together to create political intrigue or if people are going to build a guild of guardians then suddenly you've got your own world building or group building in adventure going on where you're trying to do sort of a kingmaker thing. Okay. Decide, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I, I, I think we definitely covered that question. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty much a, a given that we were going to say yes, but uh, I'm, I'm pleased that you were very you know thorough and kind of going through all the different ways that that can in fact be true. Well, I'd like to jump in real quick. Uh, something that, you know, that could be done in a dungeon that's not necessarily dungeon crawl is uh if the dungeon is in fact the setting. And you know, I mean you've got the classic is the underdark, but you could go a lot smaller than that and instead of playing the adventurers that are looting the dungeon and killing the orcs because they have pies, what if your game is the orcs and your entire game is actually the society that is built up within that dungeon in itself and the power struggles between the different areas, you know, Basic things, you know, what if you're a tribe of troglodytes and you're, you know, capturing rust monsters to aid in the defense of your home against the guys that are coming in to do the dungeon crawls? So, I mean, there's... Congratulations. You are, you are kobolds and you were born in the cradle of Tiamat that is a holy site to your people and for some reason people keep wanting to come steal the gems you keep there. Yeah, yes. I mean, there's there's all kinds of different ways that you can kind of tweak that and, and throw a different spin on what the dungeon is and, and what it means to your character. Uh, playing a drow in Menzo Baranzan. Yeah, I, I, I would argue Menzo Baranzan is is a city and not a yeah. dungeon, but um, it's it it is definitely moving in the same direction there. Yeah. Okay, it so it depends on when and how you run into it, right? Because the Underdark itself is just a mega dungeon. Well, it is, but I, you know, I, I think there's a good argument to be made that you know you can sort of separate a setting from a mega dungeon in a broader sense, but. Let's let's move on a little bit back towards the dungeon crawl idea. So why is the idea of a dungeon crawl so prevalent in the role-playing game Zeitgeist? I think it's because for a lot of us, especially the older gamers, it it almost epitomizes what you know initial campaigns really were. I mean, a lot of us didn't know how to build a, a grander campaign, but we did know you're in a hallway that's 30 feet long and there's a door to the left and the right. So a lot of gamers, especially from the 80s, I think a lot of our first counters with role-playing games in itself were dungeons. And so that's you know, that's what we used as a player. And then when we kind of picked up the, the screen and became the monkey on the other side, that we a lot of times fall back to what we know and and 
you know, let's be honest. I mean, running a dungeon is easy as a, as a GM. You can definitely guide and, and steer and have, you have much greater influence, I feel, than even the players do in, in what goes on once they, you know, cross that threshold into the dungeon. So you're saying it's kind of like an evolutionary structure, and that's kind of the... It's, it's kind of like the beginning way we explored the whole idea of role-playing was through that paradigm of a dungeon. That's how I feel. I mean, if you if you think back, I mean, I, I still have doodles from when I was in, like, eighth grade drawing these ridiculous dungeons with spiked walls and lava floor traps and, you know, things that just made absolutely zero sense for them to be there. But they were there, and that's what the, the characters encountered, you know, for some reason, the fifth stone, you know, on the right was the, the trap mechanism. You know, it had absolutely no reason to be there, but it was there because I drew on a big piece of graph paper that I got at the store of this crazy maze with spikes and dragons and spears and things. So, yeah. And, and then on top of being easy to run, because you're right, they are easy to run. And I think that's one of the reasons that not only do a lot of people run into them early, but people also come back to them fairly often. But they are also easy to play. By which I mean, especially early on, if you're early to role-playing games, it can be difficult to figure out what am I supposed to do. Because this isn't a computer game or a board game where you only have five options and you pick one, right? Your character can attempt anything, regardless of whether it's likely that you'll succeed or not. And if the game is a murder mystery and you have no idea how to investigate a murder, it can be hard to figure out what you're going to do. And if it's superhero games and you are confused why superheroes don't violate the local vigilantism laws. It can be hard to figure out how do I get to be Superman and not be a creepy stalker who's using X-ray vision to, to look where all the possible criminals are. But if you're told there is a place underground that has dangerous things in it and there's money, the things are a danger and you need to kill them, the money is valuable, you want to take it, and there's not much else to it, as a player, it can be really easy to figure out, okay, we're going to go there, we're going to kill the things, we're going to take their stuff, and then there's another room, and then there's another room. And it's it's a, a simple format to figure out what you're doing with role-playing before you start worrying about the rest of it. So it's like a lens you look through to see and kind of understand, at least gain a, a, a surface understanding of what role-playing is about. Yeah, I mean, I if, think, you, if you look at the beginner box as a simple set of rules, I think that the dungeon is a beginner's plot. Right. It's almost like a, it, like you're saying, with a, with a new player, beginning player, it's a way to bring the sandbox from being such a, a huge and infinite number of possibilities into a very finite set of decisions that you now have to concentrate on and worry about, as opposed to the world. So it, it kind of brings order to chaos when you're especially and and as i said you know a new dungeon master or if you're you know running out of time you know or yeah. you show up unprepared you can throw a dungeon down and bam it's easy to do so it's it's a simple it's a simple way to engage with kind of the basics of role playing and it is also it reduces the amount of analysis paralysis when you tell someone they can do anything i guess is what we're getting at yeah, I think that is a big chunk of it. I also think that as a result of that, it's also a commonality we all share. It's a, a point of similarity when gamers get together, right? We may not have all been in a murder mystery on the Orient Express, but if we all play some sort of fantasy game, there's a good chance we've all been in at least one dungeon crawl, and that gives us a common point to start any other conversation. 
Now, Daryl, don't you have like a quote from Gary Gygax yeah, about it's, it's Dungeon not a, Crawl? Un- unfortunately, it's not the direct quote because I didn't get a chance to pull up the actual interview. But uh, Gary did an interview in Dungeon Number One Twelve, where he talks about uh, the first Dungeon Crawl and how that started out in influencing when he ended up doing Chainmail and later uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, he said that basically uh, they had a war game scenario where one faction could, as an option sneak through an old abandoned escape tunnel to sneak into the enemy's castle. And they had so much fun doing that, they kept playing that scenario over and over and over again. And they had so much fun in the dungeon part that they just kept making it bigger and bigger and more complex to the point where they actually gave up on the war game part on the surface and just played in the dungeon. And that was kind of the, one of the origins of Chainmail and D&D. Okay. So... What are the strengths of using a dungeon crawl for an adventure design? We talked a little bit about this, but let's let's dive into that a little more in depth. I'd say, as a, as a dungeon master, one of the most appealing portions of it is it, is it's definitely a way to rein in some control. If you've got a party that's that's kind of I don't know, you've got this this grand campaign campaign scheme, and yet the party still hasn't stumbled across the key that's going to open up the rest of the campaign, one of the easy ways to introduce it is a basic dungeon crawl where at the end of the end of the scenario they finally receive this key that's going to get them to where the rest of the campaign is going to go. So it's definitely a way to, to bring some control when uh, you need to. Like if they need to find the key, you can just have that in the next room. I mean, that's it, it gives you an easy way to slot in the MacGuffin right. for the next stage, right? Without it seeming to be like that's what you're doing because you can even create a backstory that that's the whole reason the dungeon is actually there. So, you know, it's, it's that, it's like I said, one of the other appealing things about it is, is it, you know, you worked late yesterday, you didn't have any time, you know, your girlfriend or wife was needing you to do chores, you just didn't have time to prepare tonight's gaming session, so you show up and luckily you happen to have, you know, a dungeon module or something that you had worked on years ago and hey, you know what? I don't have anything else prepared, so here's this pre-prepared, pre, you know, the paths are left, right, or forward, up or down. So it's it's a quick on-the-spot solution to when your preparedness is not quite there for an open campaign setting. So it's good for casual play. It is very good for casual play. Okay. I also think it's worth noting that I consider one of the things I, as a player that I like about dungeons is that they are significantly more escapist than a lot of other plot lines, right? If we are going to have a big political debate about who's going to run the town because we think the current mayor is an idiot and we are trying to form a political basis to overturn him and put someone who will do a better job on the throne, that is much closer to something I've actually done in my life than here's a place with a bunch of rooms with dangerous people in it, you're going to go from one to another and knife them. And if what you're looking for is escapism, and I, I love complex, realistic gaming for some of the time, but also some of the time, I sometimes I just want to break out the dungeon board game if, if there isn't a role-playing game dungeon stop available. Just put away any concerns about the real world, divorce myself from anything that feels like anything I personally had to deal with. There's no taxes, there's no internet mail, there's no deadline from my boss, there's no worrying about the dynamics of how this is going to interact with people one town over, there's something to kill, and I have this really cool, neat ability I got at this level that allows me to turn them inside out and then set them on fire and then turn them into a swarm of ants. 
So, you know, you just brought up a really good point. I mean, dungeon crawl is, is something that kind of transcends uh, the, the types of games that you play. Because you can do it as a role-playing game, and that's kind of where we've been coming from, because that's the origin of a dungeon crawl. But you can play a dungeon crawl as Warhammer Quest, or as Descent, or as... Uh, what was the one that Watsi came out with uh, a little while ago? Uh, they had a Ravenloft one, I oh, think. The, uh, yeah, they, they, they had, had some Ravenloft board game. There was a Ravenloft one. There was They had a bunch of different setting ones, yeah. But basically, there there are dungeon crawl board games that you can just play if you want to go that route. Like Warhammer Quest is if you want to if you want to get a great dungeon crawl experience, Warhammer Quest is is right there. It, it does everything you want it to do, right? Uh, but it's yeah, not a role. Uh, but but let's you know bring it back a little bit just to rein it in and say you know for the purposes of our discussion, let's focus on the idea of it as you know in, in the milieu, if you will, of the role playing game. You know, another great thing about dungeon crawls is they can be one shots. Instead of a campaign, you can show up and generate characters or have pre-generated characters and do a one-shot dungeon crawl, and boom, you're done. So if you're, you know, friends that are coming from all corners of the country and you've got one night to game, a dungeon crawl is the way to go. You guys talked about this before, but, you know, the, the way the dungeon kind of defines the borders of exploration, it defines the adventure area. It allows you as a game master then to build encounters with a very fine, very detailed brush. Is that right? You, you certainly can, right? Because if, if I know, and it doesn't have to be fantasy either, right? If I'm doing a Ghostbusters game, this is an entirely random example. If I'm running a Ghostbusters role-playing game and there's a ghost ship and you all run into it and the only place you can get on it is at the stern then those Ghostbusters are going to go room to room in an effort to clear the thing, and you know what they're going to hit and roughly what order they're going to hit it in, unless they do something really weird. So you don't we have came, to worry about We saw, we kicked its we ass. We kicked its ass, exactly. <laughs> and here's the other thing that you just touched on. There's something very, very satisfying as a gamer to look at a night's gaming and say, that is done. If you're trying to run a kingdom, that's never done. If you're trying to to overthrow the powers of evil in a universe, or if you're trying to make enough money that you can buy a high enough lifestyle that you never have to go shadow running again, those are never done. But if you go into the 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 night tombs of Ragspy, the the Dream Lich, and at the end of that, however long it is, be it five rooms or five hundred rooms. At the end of it, if you've dealt with everything in there and possibly post enough guards and wards that every room is empty, you can say, that's done. We have finished this adventure. It is complete. We can paint it on the side of our X-Wing and move on. Mr. Stevens, I am totally stealing that adventure name. You know, I want to, I want to address something else about that because you're, you're hitting like really, really close to something I think is important about dungeons is there's an actual really strong historical context and shared experience context with dungeons, just because as part of the Zeitgeist of role-playing games, they are a thing that, you know, gamers generally know what, what those are about. Like when you say Tomb of Horrors, or when you say Temple of Elemental Evil, you know, you, people can share stories and experiences, and you can say, well, did you jump in the demon's mouth or not, right? And, yeah. and those are th- that's part of being a gamer. If you want to expand it out a little bit, Legend of Zelda. Well, I'm going to say, like, you know, again, specifically confining it to role-playing yeah. games, dungeon crawls. Like, I could say to probably, you know, someone with a lot of experience who is a gamer, like Brian, like Owen, I could probably say to them, "Hey, do you remember the Throne of Bloodstone?" 
you know, I just had a conversation about Keep on the Borderlands, right? Yeah. It's a common experience where, where neither of us looked that thing up. I haven't looked at it in years at the earliest, but it was it was formative enough as a shared experience that we can have a conversation about it. Like the Caves of Chaos and the uh, Metzner box set with Alina and Bargle. You know, that is like my core beginning of, of understanding what D&D is about. And it's through a dungeon crawl. Bargle. Yeah, that motherfucker. <laughs> and there's a, there's a nostalgia element, too, right? I am really enjoying playing in James Jacobs' Temple of Elemental Evil. And the temple is arguably a, a dungeon crawl. But we're not there yet. Our characters literally aren't in the temple yet. So we keep saying we're playing the Temple of Elemental Evil, when in fact we are currently playing dangerous swamps around the town of Nulb. <laughs> but that's not what we say, because there's a value and a nostalgia to that title. Right. That's what I'm getting at. It's, I think yeah, it's absolutely got some historical value to play through certain dungeon crawls and to be able to share that experience with other gamers. I hated that Bargle had charm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I know you want. I know you want to keep this in a ARPG context, Ross, and I will. I will mostly do that, but I do want to say that Daryl has a legitimate point, and that is one of the reasons this is part of our gamer zeitgeist is that it is one of the tropes that does most easily translate, and therefore is the most reinforced by other geek things we might do. Right? Early computer games are often very much dungeon crawl. If you've got the old rogue mud, that's basically a dungeon crawl. A yeah. lot of those things are dungeon crawls, and so. Even if you've never played in a D&D dungeon crawl, there's a good chance if you're a gamer that you've done something like a dungeon crawl. So if someone invites you to a dungeon crawl, you've got a basis to figure out what you're going to do and how you're going to handle it and what that's going to be like. Yeah, it's like part of our shared language. Even if you've never played a game, period. I mean, let's think about it. Star Wars. The Death Star is a dungeon crawl. One of the most, you know, meaningful points in that entire movie of New Hope is a giant dungeon crawl. You know, half of the movie is devoted to that. So even if you, your first time gaming anywhere, you've already been exposed more than likely to a dungeon crawl through visual or, you know, book means. Prisoner transfer from cell block 1138. <laughs> now, what's the first thing they did? Split the party. Sent the wizard off to go do some other thing while they went to go rescue <laughs> but the princess. If you watch, they do always go left. <laughs> they, they split the party because Obi-Wan Kenobi's player couldn't make it that night ah. alright so let's we, we've talked about the things that are good about dungeon crawls but I think we all know that that role playing in a lot of ways especially as you get older and the more you do it you kind of tend to move away from it so what are the weaknesses of a dungeon crawl Monty Hall what is Monty Hall for the listeners Monty Hall, okay, the, the problem that I've always had with dungeons that I've played in, and even sometimes when I've run, is for some reason, as a dungeon master, when you are making your dungeon up, you have the strange compulsion to start putting things in as rewards that then just compound upon each other until you become, you're, you're dealing with a party that destroys each room, takes a more powerful item, which then aids them in the next room, to destroy whatever until it's completely out of control. And then you're having to do the hack master where you kill off the party to take all their goods and then resurrect them later. And then they hate you. Weirdly as a GM, I've had that problem far more with, with kingdom building games than I have in dungeon crawls, because the more the players are doing something other than kill things, the more I forget what I've already given them to help them kill things. Well, I always had the problem with it because as you, you know, 
as they go through the dungeon, they're gaining items, armor, weapons, and hit points because they're going up in level. And depending on how you handle level and experience in your campaign, by the time they're through it, they're much more powerful than they were when they started it, usually. I've run into a lot of games where it seemed like the, the GM had all these great you know, items and, and ideas, but didn't think it through to the end and go, oh my god, I just gave them this, 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 and this. That's going to really screw things up for the rest of the campaign now, because sure. they've got these items. I, I don't think that problem is unique to, to Dungeons, and I think a lot of modern role-playing games specifically have guidelines designed to avoid it. For instance, Pathfinder has the wealth by level rules and the wealth by encounter rules. So if you actually follow those, you'll you'll get something reasonable. But I do think that there's a temptation to not follow them in a dungeon. And I think that's because of a more root problem, which is no matter what you do, there are only so many things you can do in a dungeon. And as much as we were just talking about it being great for one-shots, and I enjoy them as as escapism, if the GM and the players aren't injecting something of themselves into it, then it can get pretty boring pretty quick. And I personally yes. think that one of the reasons that Monty Hallism may show up in dungeons is that the dungeon master's thinking, I need to excite people. They're not going to be excited by another monster, although that is the other thing I've seen happen, right? As a GM say, okay, they're ignoring all of my liches now, so this will be a half-lich, mythic ten, mummy, hydro, ten heads that each spell cast, but maybe that'll get their attention. So um, what, we're, what we're really talking about is tedium. There, and, there's certainly a high risk of tedium. Yeah, and then the, the ways that the, the common methods to, uh, to uh, try to address it from a DM at that point can be Monty Hallism or Grudge Monsters or, you know, many other, uh, uh, you open the door and the bad trust. behavior. Many other GM bad behaviors. <laughs> it, it's the carrot and the stick. That's what we're talking about right now. It's they're not paying yeah. attention to the they're not paying yeah. attention to the stick. So let's get, add more carrots. You got Monty Hall. If you go the it, other it way and add too much stick, then you have the mythic tin hydra lich. Uh, yeah, and if you use too much carrot and stick, your players end up fat and bruised. Right, a little <laughs> bit of both is fine, but too much of either is a problem. Too much of both, and you 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 get a a death spiral of power, as was just being mentioned earlier. Because for me, whenever I'm running, whenever I'm designing a game, uh, especially dungeon crawl style, I always kind of worry that they're not going to feel any sort of accomplishment aside from what well, we cleared the dungeon. What did we get out of it? Well, it may also be a lot of the players I've played with are very focused on treasure and outfitting their characters. But I, I kind of forces me to put in there so they feel some sort of reward aside from just the sense of accomplishment. And and non non wealth non power rewards are harder to arrange in a dungeon than they are in some other places, right? If if the players all save a small town and they are given the key to the town and the inn says you can stay here and eat here for free from now on, that's not a power boost, but it can give the players a sense of accomplishment. That's harder to arrange when it's a hole in the ground that happens to have an orc in it. So I think we're all kind of getting really close to something I think is really important to talk about with dungeons, and that's probably the thing that turns a lot of gamers off to the cult idea is that typically dungeons are, I, I want to say, infamous, and, and not always deservedly so, but they're infamous for having a lack of a story or a lack of a plot and especially a lack of social interactions. There's only one classic dungeon I can think of off the top of my head that in the game had social inter interactions built in, and that's the Moat House in Temple of Elemental Evil, the Bugbears. Spoilers. We, we handled the Moat House. We got that. 
Um, yeah, <laughs> it's a twenty-year-old adventure. Damn it! Has anyone not um, played? <laughs> I mean, seriously, <laughs> maybe not in our listenership. I, I mean, know. this is true. We are getting old, and there's a whole new generation of players. So, God, I hate this. Um, get off my lawn. So, <laughs> I think a lot of modern adventures do a lot to have social interaction. And again, because it is fairly recent, I don't want to go into too much detail with with the Emerald Spire. But I ran the first three levels of Emerald Spire uh, at the most recent. Paizocon, and the first group to take the first level engaged in a lot of social interaction because there were the notes there on who hated and who liked who, and if you were willing to do it, it was an option. I think a lot of old dungeons didn't have a lot of it, and that is one of the places where it got that rep, but I think the other thing is that a lot of the ones that do include it now, it's optional. And so for a lot of players, they are convinced that what they're supposed to do is kill everything. They're, they're murder hobos, the famous murder hobo. And, and feel everything as fast as possible. <laughs> yeah, and and that doesn't require a lot of decisions. So even if I have decided that this particular level is controlled by a hobgoblin horde that are training to go kill a bunch of drow that they have a compact with that was violated by the drow, and they've got a revenge thing going, and they will happily assist anyone who might go kill drow somewhere else, and they've, they've got a leader, and there's a shaman who's looking to learn spells, and there's a group that wants to overthrow the current leader, and they're, you know, they can be a fully civilized people with a language and a code of law, and as soon as you say there's a tall, strong humanoid with red skin and pointed ears and tusks, there's a decent chance that in a lot of groups someone says, I waste him with my crossbow. Hootie hoo. Yeah, you got a good point there. I mean, um, it's just that, I, you, we, we say it, it, it's it's undeservedly so, uh, especially because of the more recent stuff. But it is, I think, just a built into the whole idea is that there is that stigma, right? And I, I would even go so far as to say, like, especially some of the early adventures and early dungeons, and and a lot of the foundational things for what is a dungeon crawl, they lack a lot of verisimilitude. Good word. They're just. They're, they don't make a lot of logical sense sometimes. You know, why is the orc in a 10 by 10 room guarding a pie? Why? You know, and, and sometimes that, sometimes it isn't important. Like, I think if we're just going to play, if we all agree that we want to play Warhammer Quest and we want to do it with some role playing, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with just having like, Hey, it's a random room with a guy in it. But I think that that can be a problem for people who are more into the story side of the role-playing part, or the more into the character development and being part of an immersive world. Right. Well, this this is a place where expectations can cause problems. Right. You're both going to have places where the GM careful or the or the people writing the adventure carefully set up a backstory that you can engage with, and there's plenty of opportunity for role-playing, and the players just decide to kill everything. Just as often, I think you run a risk of the other side of things where the players run into something and they say, well, why is there an orc in the hallway with an arrow in his shoulder? We should talk to him. And the GM gets a panicked look on his place because the encounter says, hallway, orc, one, half hit points, arrow in shoulder, because the people that wrote it, be that he or professional, assumed that that orc was just going to get wasted, so there's no backstory there. And I think well, both and, of those I- cause that, that archetypical trope to get passed on. Again, true or not, that... That you there isn't role playing in a dungeon, right? I guess what my point is is that just the very idea of a dungeon crawl sets up certain expectations, whether those expectations are true or not, and it does require some extra effort on the GM's part if if he is not embracing those specific tropes and expectations in his dungeon crawl. 
I, I think that's the sort of thing that is always handled well, either from a professional level and telling people up front what you are and aren't doing in this adventure. Uh, when we were doing Dragon's Dell, Monty has uh, a little money cook who started it. has an introduction where he says, if you are worrying about what the monsters on level three are eating, you are in the wrong adventure. Um, <laughs> and, and that's great, right? Because if I am a GM and I'm trying to figure out whether or not I want to buy this and play it, that tells me that if I really am going to worry about that or my players are going to worry about that, then I will either need to do a lot of work or I need to find a different adventure. The flip side of that is when I then talk to my players, I should make sure they know what what tone of game we're going for. Okay. And I think it's less obvious within a dungeon than it is with some other things. I, I agree. It is definitely less obvious. We have hit our, our midway point, so let's take a quick break, and we'll be back. Hi, this is Sean Patrick Fennin, founder and chief visionary officer of Evil Beagle Games. We're the publisher of Shintar, the epic high fantasy setting for Savage Worlds. It's like Lord of the Rings meets Die Hard. We also publish the very cool and quirky deck-building game, Colossal Clash. The Beagle's proud to sponsor the Gamer's Tavern, a place where you can relax and get schooled at the same time. Seriously, you listen to these guys, you get free points on your Gamer Knowledge Score. So grab a drink and listen to my friends Ross Watson and Daryl Mott as they interview the best and the brightest in the hobby about all kinds of great stuff, or live play something really cool at the virtual table. And remember, Evil Beagle Games. Bad dog, good games. Now somebody beer me! And we're back with episode 41 of the Gamer's Tavern, talking about Dungeon Crawls with Bryant Smith and Owen Casey Stevens. We were just talking about some of the weaknesses of the Dungeon Crawl as an adventure, and I, I just actually thought of something I wanted to point out, and that is the the kind of minutia that a lot of Dungeon Crawls seem to encourage, the whole idea of tapping the floor with a 10-foot pole and checking for traps at every single door things of that nature, I think that kind of makes the gameplay really move very slowly, which can add to that tedium that we were talking about earlier. And again, it's an expectation, I think, that just comes out of what it is as a dungeon crawl. I, I checked the, the grass mat under the golden pond. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. as the DM, you're just sitting there <laughs> waiting to say... A lot of also has to do with your game system and your, your player builds, right? So... As a random example, there's a talent as a Pathfinder Rogue that you can take, so if you're about to set off a trap, you get to make a check automatically to see if you notice it. And if you've got a player that's going to worry about traps and he's playing a Rogue, he should take that, because then he can go trawling along quickly. There are other game systems that do things like you can write down five things your character always does, and you can just say, I always check door for traps, and then you don't have to take it out. So that's that's it. That's yeah. both a game system and player mechanic, as well as an expectation of the setup. Yeah, I, the only reason I mention it is because it is, I think, part of that inf- infamy that is attached to a dungeon crawl as one of the things you kind of expect to have to do. But you're right that there's a lot of ways around that. And so, so for, especially for older gamers, dungeon crawls are an X, right? And if we had a good experience with our X, then we're happy, and we'll, we'll go out and have other times with our X when our X comes along. Other people were hurt by their X, <laughs> and if you were playing in a dungeon crawl, and the character was really important to you, and you were going across a great big open room that you were told was a temple, and off-center near the middle, there's a lethal pit trap for no freaking reason, and the GM just goes, ah, you should have checked for traps, then you're more likely to have a negative reaction towards dungeons in general and, and carry those into every dungeon because they are a shared experience and something familiar even if the new dungeons are a different game system and a different designer and a different GM and a different setup entirely. All my dungeons live in Texas? Yeah, well, some of them do, right? I mean, it's a big <laughs> state. <laughs> you know, one of the other problems that I have seen with dungeons in the past is 
they are not always compatible with player characters' choices. Uh, yeah, but, but who the players are, are actually you know, running. Uh, there are some that lend themselves very well to dungeons. You know, you've got players in the dungeon that's you know overwhelmed with skeletons and ghouls. The fighter's always good. The wizard, but then you get you know like the bard sometimes can have an issue. Sometimes you know if it's not a trap intensive, then the thief even can have some problems. But one of the the hardest to play in a dungeon setting a lot of times is a druid. Uh, ranger, rangers, you know, so there's some class specific traits that do not play well at all in the dungeons. And yeah, if you're, especially a ranger, you know, you're having this great time playing this character and suddenly the DM throws on you guys a dungeon, you're like, ah, great. So like half my class abilities don't do anything. (laughs) Although again, it depends, right? Because depending on your game, underground may be one of your favorite terrains, so there's a real good chance you took orc or dragon as a favorite enemy and they're in dungeons a lot. Um, well, yeah, fair, fair it's point. It's a legitimate, it's an absolutely legitimate point. I actually think the people that are most screwed in a dungeon are people that are based on mounted combat. <laughs> if I'm playing, if I'm playing a cavalier and I expect to be able to do the occasional lance charge and I am in the dungeon of stairs with hanging chains, my character has largely been reduced to a cut rate fighter. Well, if you're a halfling and you ride a dog, you might be a little better off, but yes. It doesn't help with the chains. Dogs can't climb. Not <laughs> All right. Well, okay. Let's uh, let's move away from talking about the weaknesses and the strengths. Let's talk about crafting a good dungeon because I think when we're DMs and we want to give people that dungeon crawl experience that is is a positive one, we have certain things that we do. And I want to you know again throw this out to the guest, but let's start actually with Daryl because he is initials in fact are DM, and I bet he's crafted a few dungeons before. <laughs> Yes, I have. Daryl, how do you craft a good dungeon crawl? A couple of different things I always think about. First one is the size is probably the most important thing. You either want to put in a stopping place, a good place where they can hole up and make a base if they don't have uh, like secret, any sort of secret room or spells that will protect them. You've got to either make sure they can clear the dungeon in one session or that they will leave at one point, obviously, to go out and get something else. Like, oh, we need to go get this map back from town. Or you have to put in some safe harbor for them. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck saying, okay, how many hit points did everyone have at the last session? And how many of your uh, once-per-day abilities, how many spells did you have left? And yeah, my 15-minute book- workday is over. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got you've to really think about the size of it. Because if you make it too big, then they're going to, you're going to end up at like 1230. Everyone's nodding off the table because they have to work tomorrow. If you're running a weekday game or three in the morning on a weekend game and they've still got a third of the dungeon left to explore and there's nowhere for them to rest. That's going to be a lot of bookkeeping hassle for the next session. And everyone's trying to remember, Oh, did we go to this room or not? Plus if you make it too small, then, okay, now we've still got two hours left of the session. You've already cleared everything. I get nothing else prepped. Um, let's roll random encounters. What do you think, Owen? Uh, I think there's absolutely right. You do have to think about size. I don't necessarily come up with the answers he does, but you do need to think about it. One play style that a lot of people enjoy is the dungeon as survival horror. And that's the situation where the characters may not have walked in the main entrance, right? You you can do a Land of the Lost thing where you get dumped in a dungeon or you wake up in a dungeon and you don't know where you're going to have to get. 
And there is no 15-minute workday. There is no safe haven. And your characters have to figure out how to survive. And part of resource management is, as the wizard, do I blow all my spells now? Or do I save a fireball just in case? This is one of the things where I say playstyle can be a huge thing about game balance, right? If your spellcasters are always worried about whether or not they need to hold something back, that makes the fighter who can always swing a sword have an advantage that it doesn't have in a game where they depend on being able to leave at will. But you do have to think about it, and, and you have to address what am I doing, and that again goes that expectation. If I'm designing an adventure for my players as a GM, I very much want to look at what are they good at, what do they want to do, and not create a dungeon that totally neutralizes a character. Yes, you want a certain amount of reality in your campaign world, but you don't want so much reality that one player is being asked for two levels of exploration. You don't get to do anything. And just like we were talking about, you know, if your cavalier is a dog, that's different, uh, riding a dog, that's a different thing than if he's riding an elephant. So just give that some thought. I personally also like to have the dungeon feel very connected to the game in general. If it's, the, if it's the whole campaign, then I want people to be willing to read the backstory about where it started. If it's something that you get in into, then I want it to be something more like Temple of Elemental Evil, since that's my current example, where you start somewhere else entirely, and you learn about this thing as you go, and it seems like it's part of the landscape, rather than we're wandering along, and then suddenly there's this Pac-Man level in the middle of nowhere, and there are some dots, and there are some ghosts, and we have to clear all the passageways because it can be very easy for a dungeon to feel disconnected with what's going on before. Okay. Brian, how do, how do you craft a good dungeon crawl? Two things that are always in my mind whenever I, I start dealing with the idea of doing a dungeon crawl. One, motivation. What am I going to use to, you know, entice the players to be there, to, you know, make it so they want to actually be there instead of being like, you know, Owen was saying they're wandering along and suddenly they, you know, see a cave. Context. Yeah, I, I definitely like to have the, the motivation of the party in, in mind. I also really like to do foreshadowing for dungeon crawls. I don't typically like to start with a dungeon crawl. I like to foreshadow the fact that there is a dungeon there or there is something that they will eventually get to because, again, that kind of leads into the enticement of them eventually going to find this thing and, and seek it out. And the other thing that I think is uh, that I use it a lot for, like I said earlier, is I like to use it to get the campaign going from a slow spot to where it needs to kind of gear back to to, to get back on track. So if I'm in that kind of situation, I look at how can I use this dungeon to motivate the characters to get them past, you know, the, the hump that they're in right now. Uh, pacing, like long-term yeah. pacing? Exactly. So I, I kind of go at the dungeon with a, a little bit more thought process involved in, in why am I even doing a dungeon in the first place. Okay. Those are all good questions. Daryl? One thing I think you, you've often talked to me about is kind of the, the versatility of, you know, why are all these monsters working together? You mm-hmm. know, how, how is there some kind of, why, why are they comfortable living in a cave you know, <laughs> when they could be in a castle? That kind of a thing, right? Those are, those are things that are part of that versatility in context, right? Yeah. You really want to, at least for me, there's somewhere, if, like Owen was saying earlier, if you're worried about how the dungeon, how the orcs on the third level of the dungeon are eating, you're playing the wrong module. But for me, I like m- making it make sense. It kind of helps with that immersion factor. If 
the monsters are there for a reason. Either they're all kind of the same type, the type that work together, or uh, maybe these are slaves, other ones. Even if it's something the players never find out what it's about, it's a good thing for you to know because it helps you lay things out in a way that presents it well to the players. Well, yeah, I, I would say, you know, if I if you asked me, like, what is my thing about crafting a good dungeon crawl, my probably prime rule would be to make it interesting, to find some kind of, you know, neat way to make the dungeon exciting and fun. Okay, and, and I, room I, C. This is a 20-foot by 30-foot yeah. plain stone room. Right, Inside right. Inside like, there are three orcs. They attack. Right, I, I think... I think dungeons are one of those places you can really get creative. Uh, like, for example, I like to use those, um, those Grimtooth's traps books, not to make traps, but to come up with some really cool and exciting, you know, room ideas. Like the idea of, you know, you come across a room and the whole floor is covered in lava and the only way across is to jump on these, you know, wooden platforms suspended on chains. Why is that there? You know, maybe, maybe that's important. Maybe it's not, but it certainly is an interesting room. It creates an interesting challenge. And like when I'm designing a dungeon, I think that's probably my primary goal is to come up with something that makes the players go, huh, that's pretty cool. And even if you're worried about the verisimilitude, if you want to put in something that's that cool and epic, go ahead and do it because they're not going to be worried about why is there lava suddenly in this room? They're going to be thinking about cool lava room. Well, like, for example, one of my favorite dungeons is actually a classic. It's the old In Search of the Unknown, right? You guys are familiar with In Search of the Unknown? Uh-huh. Sure. So the whole uh, the whole story behind it, search the unknown, is that these two guys were adventurers. There was a fighter and a wizard, and they were they were friends, and they were adventuring together. And then they decided to build the stronghold. And one of the things that like the reason why search the unknown has all kind of these these crazy rooms and things of that nature is because they were like using it as a place to you know sort of test their metal, right? You know, and I, I thought that was always kind of cool. So you, these guys decided to settle down, and they made an obstacle course, right? You know, why not? And I think that's that's kind of a, a fun bit in that adventure that you can I, that I have often you know kind of used in in some of the dungeons I've made is, is you know the idea that they're testing or you know seeking to prove a champion you know through through the use of of the various rooms and things that are that are down there so it allows you to create you know the weird Indiana Jones traps and things of that nature and you know when you're talking about a fantasy game and a fantasy world. When we say make sense, we mean make sense in the context of that world, right? If your campaign world has, and this is a terrible name, but I'm just, as an example, if you've got Lawrence, the god of traps and treasure, then if people know that the god Lawrence exists, and you're told this is a 20-level temple to Lawrence, and you, you can't become a high priest of Lawrence unless you've gotten down to this level, because he's the god of traps, right? No one blinks if a god of forgery has a forge in his temple. No one blinks if the god of beer has a, a brewery in his temple. If you've got a god of traps and dangerous devices and, and unusual levers and buttons and, and pits, it would make sense within the context of that world, though you'd have to give him a much better name, to have a, a holy dungeon that is a monument to trickery and trying to stay alive. Daryl, didn't we have Lee Langston on the show a while back, and isn't isn't he like the official god of gaming according to at least one RPG? I think so. <laughs> I don't remember, remember which game it was specifically, but he is apparently one of the RPGs. We have a guest who is the actual god of gaming. So there you there go. There you go. <laughs> I think Daryl kind of hit on it too. Is 
one of the things that I, that I also do when I'm populating the dungeon is I think of the ecology. And I don't typically, you know, grab the random encounters or, or a lot of times I don't even go with the module of what they've got to populate with because a lot of times you're kind of scratching your head with, okay, um, yeah, I'm not really sure why this is in here because it hates everything else that's in here. But so what I'll do is, you know, I'll take a look at, okay, carrion crawlers, those are, you know, living trash compactors. That's great. So that would be a reason that these other animals or creatures would tolerate them. Uh, you know, if it's a, a group that uses stone items as weapons or whatnot, yeah, they might have some rust monsters that they've helped, you know, populate their area to help protect them. Things like that. So I, I definitely get into like the ecology of, of what is populating and why it's there. Because I, I think at the end of the day, while you're suspending belief a lot of times as a player, you're still looking for logic in whatever it is that you're doing. And, and I know as a player, when I get into a dungeon where, yeah, in one room there's, you know, a demon and in the next room there's a dragon. Well, okay, why, why aren't they like fighting it out? I don't. Well, I'm going to go on the record and say I don't think you need, I don't think versimilitude is absolutely necessary to enjoy a dungeon crawl. Sometimes part of what makes a dungeon crawl, dungeon crawl is just, it's a random collection of things, you know, that, so it's not necessarily always wrong. That's all I'm saying. It depends uh, on what you're but, trying to do with the dungeon crawl. Right. If you're just so doing a one shot, throw whatever you want in there. But if you're adding it into a campaign that's ongoing that has more of a story or a plot, but the dungeon crawl is like a little stopover, then it is something you may want to at least play some lip service to. Well, all I'm saying is for me, like personally, like I, I like to, I like to imagine, you know, the immersion factor is one of the things really important to me. So I, I, I like to see a dungeon when I'm playing through it as like a puzzle to be solved. Like I'm always trying, it's in, in character, I'm almost always trying to figure out, you know, what is the purpose of this dungeon? Why are these things here? And if there is some kind of overriding goal, if I can figure out that puzzle of the overall idea of the dungeon, to me that feels like an achievement. And again, I, I think a lot of that goes back to what we were talking about, that one of the reasons dungeons sometimes get a bad rap is that what people expect and what they explain this dungeon is about can be different. So we've all agreed that, yeah, you want to take a look at the ecology if you're trying to do a serious ongoing world and that makes sense. And if you're just doing a one-shot, it doesn't matter. And even if you just want to have a demon or dragon right next to each other, you can do that if this dungeon is where the famous arc wizard kept his prisoners and none of them can escape their rooms, right? So there yeah. are ways to handle all of that. But if someone walks into a dungeon and they they think you haven't put any thought into it and you have, or they think you have and you haven't, both of those can cause expectation problems. Well, I want to do a quick shout-out to a couple of different ways to do dungeons that I think are really exciting. Uh, one is, of course, X-Crawl, which is like a, its own setting that basically puts out the idea that dungeons are really uh, like American Gladiator-style uh, TV shows, and, <laughs> and adventurers are like have their sponsors and everything. So when a dungeon, when you're adventuring through a dungeon in X-Crawl, it was actually built specifically for the purpose of entertaining the viewers with your antics as your adventures, which is awesome. I love that idea. It's like the running man, yeah. And then well, actually, the, uh, It goes back even further than that, right? Dream Park and the Dream Park role-playing game did exactly the same idea. But, you know, X-Crawl, I think, really embraced it more than probably any other I've ever seen about that. And then the other one I think is really important to mention is the, uh, the Undermountain uh, Mega Dungeon, which is in the Forgotten Realms. And the overriding conceit of Undermountain is that it was constructed and built by an OCD, completely wackadoo, 
insane archmage. So the reason why there's like ridiculous stuff in there and things don't necessarily have to make sense is because it was made by a guy who was freaking crazy. <laughs> Hallister did not have all his marbles. It's absolutely true. Hallister Black Cliff. Thank you yep. very much. So, you know, having, having talked about like a few, you know, special dungeons, um, I'd like to ask our guests and what are your, what is one of your favorite dungeon crawl adventures? Wow. So I'm going to say a really unusual answer. Um, and that is, uh, the Tomb of Horrors. And the reason I'm going to say that is the specific Tomb of Horrors I'm talking about was the return to the Tomb of Horrors that was being playtested by John Ratliff, a scholar and a gentleman of AGM, for third edition that did not, in its format, in any way get published. But he turned the Tomb of Horrors into a really interesting, ongoing adventure, and he has, at that point, he had run it in every edition of D&D that existed, and you always got some bonus if someone would keep a journal, and the campaign always started with him giving you the journal from the uh, TPK last time he ran it, the previous edition. So we started the game with this book that had been written by actual game designers for their characters over, like, five editions of the game, and there were notes in there that might or might not still be relevant, and he turned what is classically just a meat grinder into a really interesting, frightening, dangerous dungeon, but something that made sense and that we really enjoyed very gently testing ourselves against I'm going to go with, and I, I wish I could remember the name of the, the adventure, actually, but it comes from a kind of an obscure dungeon or advanced dungeons dragons book called the Draconomicon. And uh, in it, there was a quest where you were going after this ancient, ancient, basically, you know, a step above being a zombie dragon. He was so old. And, and the dungeon in that was just a very memorable piece of that kind of one-shot type adventure. They could be worked in any kind of setting that has a lot of dragons. But I, I think of all of the ones that I've run, at the end of the day, that was the one that I that I liked the most. There were four yeah. there were four of them in the Draconomicon. The Millennium Dragon. Uh, Millennium Dragon is the one I'm talking about. Okay. So Carl Sargent wrote that one. Oh Carl Carl Sargent is a he is a well known, talented guy. I mean absolutely I mean I should have expected it to be one of his adventures. He's a really talented guy. Yeah, you, you want to talk about sectors. You named the one second edition book I have on my shelf right now, other than the player's handbook, solely because Nigel Finley wrote and edited it. It, it's it's such a great source, really. I, I love that book. Nigel, you were taken from us too early. Yep. So, Daryl, what's one of your favorite dungeons? We've pretty much mentioned all of them, but one that I... Uh, there's one that is always near and dear to my heart, and that's Temple of Elemental Evil. I've never gotten a chance to run it. I've just read it about a thousand times. But it's got some competition from Paizo recently. The uh, It actually uh, just went up on Anical News as we're recording. My review of it went up uh, last night. The Emerald Spiral Super Dungeon. Uh, the Emerald Spiral. It is just so, it is, remember I was saying about verisimilitude? The, there's a bunch of different dungeons in this thing. Together, looking at, just glancing at them, it makes no sense why all these are in the same adventure until you start reading it and it's got a great tie into it. It's just, I, it's got a, it's got an almost steampunk level from Keith Baker. Uh, it's got, uh, Frank Metzner wrote The City. Uh, it's just got so much awesome stuff and the, it is deceptively evil in some of the things it does. Lisa Stevens designed the first, uh, 
the, the first level, which is, uh, it, it's your typical, okay, this is the, this is the keep that's on top of the spire that you're trying to get down to the lower levels of. And yeah, it's populated by a bunch of goblins because it's a first level adventure. The thing you may not realize right away is until you get into the thing is that, you know, goblins have dark vision. And, uh, this isn't much of a spoiler because you find this out the second you get there. Uh, the keep actually sucks up all sources of light so they don't shine in further than five feet away. Yes, yeah, so you're nearly blind stumbling through this thing with all kinds of creatures that can see that are coming after you. Yep. And That's to make awesome. it worse, there's so much rubble that the whole thing is difficult terrain, but the goblins have gotten used to it so it doesn't slow them down. Yep. So it, it, she managed to take, okay, there's a bunch of goblins in this broken down keep and make it into hell. It's almost it sounds, it's almost ingenious to the level of Tucker's Kobolds. Yeah, that was I was just thinking that. It sounds like Tucker's Kobolds all over again. That's kind of awesome. It, it is Eddie Lisa did write a, a dungeon level that will make you afraid of goblins again. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, I uh I guess I'm gonna go next and I'm gonna cheat a little bit because I'm gonna say two. And I'm gonna say two because they're both in uh magazines, one in a dungeon magazine and one in a dragon magazine. Uh, the one in the Dragon Magazine is probably the easiest one to mention. It's called The Chasm Bridge, and it is in Dragon Issue number 131. The reason why I really like The Chasm Bridge, it's actually just an encounter, not a whole dungeon. But the thing I love about it is it's a really great story about this wizard, basically, who got wounded really, really bad while on an adventure and decided, eh, I'm just going to stay here in the dungeon and I'm going to, you know, use my wand of earth and stone to make a really awesome bridge across this, uh, big chasm and uh, I'm going to charge people it's all to cross it. And it's just a really awesome, cool little thing that you can tuck into just about any adventure anywhere. And I just, I really love it. It's, you know, not much else to say about it, but the fact that it's just fantastic dungeon type encounter that taught me a lot when I was young. This is a 1988 magazine. It taught me an awful lot of, about, you know, having a cool story in a dungeon. You've actually used that on. Yeah, absolutely. I totally did. And then the second one is an actual for real dungeon that is probably one of the most badass ever made, in my opinion. It's called Out of the Ashes, and it is from Dr- uh, Dungeon Magazine number 17. Uh, it was written by the famous Grant Boucher, uh, Boucher, Butcher. I'm sorry if I'm messing up the name, but it's B-O-U-C-H-E-R. Um, and this guy has written a, fant- a lot of fantastic adventures. But Out of the Ashes uh, features a red dragon who has returned from the dead built himself a lair in the shape of a giant crystal citadel hovering above a sea of burning lava. And it is filled with just, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's the most, one of the most badass adversaries you'd ever find. This dragon has a uh, mirror of mental prowess, which is just scary as hell. He's got hallways that turn your pack animals and torchbearers into class, uh, type six demons. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, it, and it, and at the center, it's got like a diamond, like a for real gem is powering this whole citadel right in the middle that is the size of, I want to say like a volleyball. It's an enormous gem that you could just like, they, they describe it as like being worth millions of gold pieces. So the, it's a fantastic treasure, a fantastic monster, a really imaginative place to go have an adventure. Uh, it, it's got everything you ever wanted in a really kick-ass, old-school D&D adventure. So go check out Out of the Ashes in Dungeon 17. One of the things I really like about Out of the Ashes is that the, the dragon in it was killed in an adventure in Dungeon Issue number 1. Yep, that's right. So that, that's right. that dragon was killed in a previous adventure, and he's brought back to anchor a whole new adventure. 
Yeah. So it's 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 got a larger story sense to it too, which it kind of it kind of pulls together all the really best parts, you know. <laughs> so all right, let's talk about one last thing before we get to the final thoughts here. Question for the guests: Dungeon crawls are a classic piece of gaming, but do they still have a place in the modern the modern role playing game environment? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, Daryl was just gushing about Emerald Spire, right? And that was an effort to take a a modern sensibility, but still retain the fun and make a mega dungeon that would cover a lot of different desires. And I think as long as designers will take putting a good dungeon together seriously, and as long as players have whatever combination of escapism, nostalgia, and simplicity that drives them to want to play dungeons, we're always going to have a good use for something that serves as a dungeon, be that a hole in the ground or a ghost ship. There were Shadowrun runs that were essentially dungeons, right? It's it's a pretty DNA DOA is a good example. Yeah. Yeah. The rumor core uh, Carly G archive uh, the, the the shutdown was basically yeah. Tomb of Horrors in Shadowrun. That's yeah. true it basically is, yeah. Uh, so these are these are tropes that are not going anywhere, and while I think it's a good idea to examine them so you know what works and what doesn't, I, not only is there no reason to get rid of them, there's also no way you're going to get rid of them. Right? Yeah, like I said, I mean, it, there's, it's still hands down one of the best ways to introduce the game to, to people who have never played before, because the concept's easy to follow and, and understand. So, you know, to me, it's it's always a you know, like we, we talked about Bartle. I mean, it, that's <laughs> how the game was introduced to a lot of us. That son of a bitch, I swear to God, yeah. <laughs> I've never hated, never hated an NPC more than I hated Bartle. You killed Alina, you bastard! <laughs> so, I mean, there's always going to be, and, and some genres, you know, I mean, Star Wars games, a lot of the game can actually be done in, as a dungeon crawl setting because when you're in space, you're in a ship, and that is, in a sense, a dungeon crawl. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Instead of an abandoned temple, it's a derelict ship. Yeah, the movie you know, Aliens is a dungeon crawl. You know, you're, you're, yeah, exactly, Aliens. So there's, you can't, it's almost impossible to separate that from the genre of, you know, any type of role-playing game, really. Looks like some kind of secreted resin. Yeah, but secreted from what? <laughs> All right, Daryl, do you have a, do you want to weigh in on that question? I think they really do, but I think that you need to put a lot more thought into it in the modern games landscape than you had to in previous incarnations. When you're a kid and you're like 13, 14, 15, when we all got into the hobby, it's a lot easier to run those sort of really simplified, doesn't make sense sort of dungeons, just throw monsters in there with no rhyme or reason just because they're there. But as the hobby's matured, I think you need to put more thought into uh, why they're there, what they're there for, making unique environments, making things interesting, so that it's not just thirty another thirty by twenty room with four orcs in it. I don't know about that. I'm I'm going to push back a little. I think it, it's about satisfying your need, right? If your need is to do just a kind of random Warhammer quest game, if that's what you really want to do, dungeon crawls are fine. But I also agree with your. I think I agree with you though that that our understanding of role-playing has evolved so much to this point that most gamers who are interested in stories and character development and interested in that immersion, 
immersion and verisimilitude are going to require more out of a dungeon crawl than has been true in the past. That, that might be true, but I also want to interject, Gerald's talking about when we were kids, if we want this industry to continue, there must always be some role players who are currently kids who are doing this for the first time, and I don't want there to be no place for them to cut their teeth and be able to get comfortable with how the game works before they start worrying about the morality of killing baby orcs. No, 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 I'm with you, I'm with you on that. I, as I was saying, like, if your need is just to do a, a dungeon crawl, there's no reason why you couldn't just do a dungeon crawl with all yeah, of what, the things on that. I was agreeing with your pushback, not arguing <laughs> with you. <laughs> and I actually agree with both of you, and I think that major companies, uh, I, for, for sure, I can't speak to a lot of them because I haven't looked at a lot of the more independent ones, but Paizo and Wizards of the Coast have both done an amazing job with Pathfinder recently and with the uh, new edition of D&D. The starter set dungeon is the same sort of dungeon we ran, except for everything where it is in the dungeon and the way it's laid out makes logical sense. And each it has a lot of uniqueness to it, as long as you actually read the description correctly and don't piss off one of your players by not describing <laughs> a door properly. Sorry again about that, Ross. And then you've got the Emerald Spire as well, which is another yeah. adventure that is, there is a lot of thought put into it, even if it's... It's still a dungeon crawl, but there's a lot of good thought put into it. There's a lot of good game design in it. And I really think that as long as we keep moving in that direction, then the dungeon crawl is always going to have a place. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's bring it all down to then our final thoughts about dungeon crawls. And I would like to start with Bryant. Bryant, what are your final thoughts on dungeon crawls? My final thoughts, I, you know, as I said, I, I really like to use them as adventure hooks. Uh, to get a adventure out of kind of the mire that sometimes they find themselves in, uh, and to give myself a break from having to think too much because you can whip up a dungeon in, you know, about an eighth of the time that you can do plot lines for any other campaign style. Um, as a player, you know, I really like dungeons because again, for the exact same reason, sometimes it's just fun to not have to think about why are you doing certain things. And, and I like the nostalgia of going into a dungeon and because, like I said, it, it takes you back to the beginnings of my role-playing experiences where, you know, in the, the basic box set, right. you know, and, and going after Barbell. And so every time I step foot into a dungeon, it kind of reverts my mentality or, or the feeling that I had in that to the current game or, or you know, my age now. So... I just I, I do like dungeon crawls. I think they can be overdone. Uh, it's something you've got to kind of caution that you don't want to run every other game session. But it, it's something that I still would really enjoy to. You know, I'd do a dungeon crawl right now. Well, there's some interesting, unique things you can do in a dungeon. I mean, like th- there was a bad guy I ran against Bryant's group that had slippers of spider climbing and a plus something spear, like a really powerful spear, and the dude would just run around on the ceiling, <laughs> stabbing the crap out of everybody invisibly. And, uh, they had a hell of a time, they had a hell of a time <laughs> dealing with that guy. And that was only, that was the kind of thing that only really happened. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, that's one, a- one, of, one of my players did the exact same thing, but he was an archer, so. What's, what's funny about that is then I paid Ross back tenfold because I used that exact same trick in a Star Wars game with Storm Command <laughs> using gravity boots inside of a darkened Star yeah. Destroyer, yeah. so. You know, life's a bitch, man. Yeah, payback. Payback. <laughs> Come back and get you. Payback's a bitch. 
All right, uh, Owen, what are your final thoughts on Dungeon Crawls? Uh, my final thoughts on Dungeon Crawls, to briefly mention something we haven't touched on at all. Um, Dungeon Crawls used to be one of the easiest things to do on a 3 by 5 piece of line paper with a pencil and M&Ms for figures. And nowadays, there is some beautiful resin, plastic, and even stone terrain out there you can get. Or oh, yeah. to mind, but they're not the only people. There are lots of cheaper and cheaper figure options. If you can't paint, there are more and more pre-painted figure options. People are doing things like uh, fire markers and movable door markers. And if you lay out a 3D representation, a good 3D representation of a dungeon, you can get a visceral, oh, that's cool reaction from your players that you, generally speaking, won't get if you put on a whole bunch of little bitty two-scale trees for their bandit encounter at the river. So, it's it's not that there isn't good terrain for other stuff, but there's so much accessory stuff now, especially since they're sort of ubiquitous. So you can take something that was designed for a totally different role-play game than yours, and as long as the scale is close, you can use it to make a neat experience for the players above and beyond the rules. No, that's a really great point. I can't believe we didn't talk about miniatures and Dwarven Forge. And what was that thing we played at Comic Palooza, Derek? Dungeon Stone. Dungeon Stone, yeah. Dungeon yeah. Stone. We're idiots. Yeah, it's <laughs> I, I just wanted to touch on it for near the end of our time. <laughs> you, know, you can do an entire gamer's tavern on miniatures and accessories if you're ever open mind to. It's in the pipeline. See, you're not idiots. You just haven't gotten to it yet. Yep. All right. Any other things you want to say before we uh, close out, Owen? Well, I've I, got my final thoughts. I'm not going to forget you. Guys. Okay, I'm just making sure. <laughs> so that that covers my final thoughts. Thank you. All right, um, Daryl, what are your final thoughts on dungeons? Well, let's put it this way: I have signed up for Gen Con coming up, I have signed up in advance for exactly one game. I am playing Hackmaster. That should tell you how I feel about Dungeons right there. That is the one game I went out of my way to make sure I had a chance to play at the con. Just remember, a, 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 a torch to the groin does give you a modifier for inter- uh, interrogations in that game. <laughs> you know, I, I realized I said I was done with my final thoughts, but Daryl <laughs> just remind me of a, a new final thought. Oh. Um, if you're at Gen Con and your time and money will hold out, there's a true dungeon walkthrough dungeon adventuring experience, and that that is different than doing it with a little miniature or the theater of your mind. So keep that in mind as a different way to look at dungeons. Absolutely true. I think my final thoughts are pretty much just kind of me going back over some things we talked about before. I, I think there's lots of different ways to do a dungeon crawl and to have it be fun from the random Warhammer Quest style of let's just play through a dungeon to the really advanced, interesting stuff like, uh, you know, Expedition to the Barrier Peaks has a dungeon inside of a spaceship, which is kind of amazing. Uh, dungeon number 17 has another adventure called The Pit, which is just a beautiful, it's a beautiful little dungeon crawl, uh, you know, that, that takes place in the sealed lair of an evil cult. So you can do a dungeon crawl in a lot of different ways, and it can be a lot of fun in a lot of different ways. And I think it's just important to keep in mind some of the pitfalls that we talked about tonight, some of the traps that are waiting for you if you do choose to run a dungeon crawl. Try to avoid those, use your 10-foot pole, and remember to have fun. And if you fall off the bridge, don't blow the conch. Yeah, don't, yeah, don't blow the, the golden conch when you fall off the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you, Jolly Blackbird. All right. Last thing before we close out, I just want to ask Owen and Bryant and Daryl if there's one dungeon they would recommend for a player to try before he or she dies. What dungeon would that be? I, like I said, I, I mean, it, it's very obscure and probably extremely hard to find, although I haven't really looked online for it, would be the Millennium Dragon from Draconomicon. I mean, it's... That's the one. It's something that very, very few players have seen, and it's easily adaptable to a multiple group of campaign settings that you could toss that into. So if you get the chance, Draconomicon, the Millennium Dragon, has a great dungeon in it. All right, Owen, one dungeon to try before we die, and that is? If you haven't done it, the original Castle Ravenloft. Ooh, yeah, a good one. Um, The Sun Sword. Yeah, the the Sun Sword, the crypts, the creepy Mishtani gypsy people, the fact that one of the player characters is going to be tied to the adventure in a way that had not been done prior to them. Um, I have always thought the original Castle Ravenloft is one of the most solidly done dungeons for being able to support a lot of different styles of play. Okay, and Daryl? I'm going to have to say the Temple of Elemental Evil. The classic. It is a classic. It is huge. It is giant. You can run an entire campaign on that and not get bored. There is so much to do in uh, Hamlet and Nalb. Uh, the moat house is classic. Everyone fucking hates giant frogs because of that. That that said, be prepared to either have people giggle or rename some stuff. Because in Nolb, one of the taverns is run by Dick Wrenched. Yes. And oh, I'm gonna throw out there I'm gonna throw out there a uh, an oldie but a goodie. I'm gonna say Queen of the Demon Web Pits. Uh, yeah. Solid. With the the awesome hallway of doors that leads to other planes, you fight a vampire. There's like a whole castle of the vampire lord in it. Aside from the demon web pits, aside from Lolf, aside from the giant city-sized spider walking around that's made out of metal, it, it's it's just it's bizarre. It's funky. It's completely wackadoo, but it's so much fun. The correct spelling of Lolf. <laughs> so yeah, Queen of the Demon Web Pits would be my suggestion. And uh, with that, the Imperial Guard is coming into the tavern, and uh, Mac, the bartender, is giving me the eye, so it's time to close this one down. Uh, on behalf of Daryl and myself, I want to say uh, we're very grateful and thankful to have Bryant and Owen join us tonight. Thank you very much, gentlemen. I appreciate Thank it. you for having us. Okay, Owen, is there anything that you are working on that's your latest thing that people should know about? Plunder and Peril from Paizo should be out sometime this year, though I don't know when because that's outside of my hands. Advanced Bestiary from Green Ronin. Uh, the initial PDF is out to backers, which should be for sale sometime after Gen Con. And for Rogue Genius Games, I am finally going to release the Dracomancer, which is a class I've been working on for four years. Nice. And also, Owen, just so you know, I am for hire. <laughs> I will keep that in mind. You know, awesome. if I had spare money, I probably wouldn't work for three game companies. <laughs> you know, just saying, in any, in any of your official capacities. Gotcha. I will, I will shuffle hats and see what we have. All right. Uh, Bryant, um, it, I know you're not a writer or game designer, but is there anything that people should know about you that is going to happen soon? I might be soon transporting coal to at least one in ten people's houses. Ten ten percent of the coal burning houses in the world. Yep. Awesome. Until next time, may all your hits be crits.
Hi, this is Nick Jaworski, and you may not realize it or probably don't care, but I edit some of the shows here on the Gamers Tavern Podcast Network. If you like podcasts but love audio editing, then I have great news for you. I have my own show titled One Degree of Separation, and you can listen to it right now and subscribe at OneDegreeWithNick.com. The show is kind of hard to describe. Each episode is basically an experiment that contains original music, stories, interviews. It's probably just best if I quickly show you some recent episodes. Try to see what you had, if you had anything interesting for me. Well, uh, have you ever, ever waterboarded somebody? It was actually a story of Abraham Lincoln, a very superstitious man, seeing his own doppelganger multiple times over a couple of nights. When looking in the mirror, he saw two faces, his normal face and then a pale, ghostly one that that worried him. I have to get back to editing right now, but you should go check out all of that and more at OneDegreeWithNick.com. Thanks. Thanks.